Hello and welcome to the Veer Vulnerabilis Veer podcast. I'm Adam Glinsky. I'm Albert Imbrato. Where we help men communicate and build empathy. All right, Albert, I don't know about you, but I have had a very emotional week, um, probably for a month. And uh, I've just been filled up with so much. I, tell me how you've been, because, you know, we, we talk on, on the shows and we talk a little bit offline, but man, I would say between this taping and, and the last, there's been a lot that I, I've gone through. So I just want to hear about what, what, what's been going up on Upstate. Do you, do you um, feel that a month's worth of, of life experience and emotion has happened in a week? Is that what you mean by it's, it's like a month yeah. in a week? Is, mm-hmm. that, is that how you feel? Okay, because totally. you said something about the week and the month. And, and I, I think that's, the, that's definitely where we're at right now as a culture. Every day is a, uh, is a, a maelstrom of information, of um, inspiration, of uh, depression, of concern, um, just a lot of competing things happening all at once. I mean, think about it. When COVID happened, it was absolutely impossible to imagine that there was going to be something happening in America that would eclipse it in the news. And that is that is a major, major statement of recognition of this, the, the seriousness of the issue and its you know, pr- you know, incredible impact on our society. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of in the mode of enjoying um, the break that I get from all this heavy stuff, including, you know, the only, you know, just dealing with the challenges as is presented to the music industry and, and my, and the field that I'm in has really been hurt badly by COVID. Um, but, um, you know, there's no doubt nice weather, uh, going outside, feeling a spring breeze, spending the, you know, going out in the morning and being comfortable outside, all that does something really great for my brain. Um, I feel much less, um, I, I just can, it, it's, it's a, a, a quick patch when I'm feeling like I'm feeling inundated by, by any kind of negativity. So, um, anyway, tell, tell me a little bit. I mean, you're, you're being racked obviously by lots of different things. I mean, in a, in a nutshell, what, where, where's your head right now? Yeah. I mean, it's just, um, you know, there's, everything is just circling around and, um, you know, speaking to my therapist, you know, like I've had to, you know, confront my parents on some things I've had to, you know, talk a lot about my work group, about what they've experienced and I haven't. Um, I look at the news for five seconds and my heart breaks. Um, I hear extremely inspirational stories. And really what it came down to was like, I have so many emotions going on because of the current events and I need to ground myself. And the way I've been doing it is just by being with my son. And that's kind of like my grounding anchor because I know that, you know, he comes into the room, I just start smiling and it's the truth. You know, um, he's such a great kid and I love him so much that that means that my love for my son can trump any of these bad things that are going out there. Um, and Trump, even Trump, because, you know, I'm not super political, but man, I, I feel let down, um, right now with a lot of things in our country. And, uh, it's, it's caused, like I said, a ton of emotions and I'm really just trying to ground myself. So that's how I've been feeling in the past little bit. Wow. That's to, to me, sounds like uh, really healthy, healthy growth and healthy, uh, co- confrontation of, you know, in a, in a positive way, confronting where you are in, in, um, in our society, where you are in your life, you know, as you grow, just as you think you go move out of one area of life, learning something about yourself, you realize there's some other level 
you know, just, just that uh, act of telling your parents maybe that you disagree with them on some really fundamental issues of that nature. Um, when you say you talk about looking at your uh, son, has the issue of race that in particular, has that changed dramatically now in looking at your own son? Your, I mean, your wife is from Ghana. Yeah. And so your son is African-American and you're not African-American and your wife is not African-American. So that, yeah. that is a kind of an unusual situation. Um, I'm just wondering, is that what, you, what you're meaning by confronting and feeling, you know, obviously you love your son. He just makes you smile yeah. and all that. But. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that that's a huge part of it is because, you know, we're living in America where they have some serious race issues and we're not a part of like racially or growing up wise, like we're not really a part of the Afri African-American community um, that grew up in America, you know, from slavery onward. We're kind of, I mean, I mean, we're both kind of, like I said, like first generation Americans because she's off the boat. I'm adopted. Who knows what I am um, or my like biological history. So it's a blank slate. And, you know, my wife actually watched the entire eight minutes and 46 seconds this morning. And, um, she, she was just was laying the first in bed. time she saw the video, the, the entire length of it. You know, we've, we've watched a few of the other ones and, you know, she was just crushed and we were just talking about it for, you know, 10, 15 minutes. And then she brought up, uh, Robert De Niro, um, how he has, uh, six, uh, biracial kids and, um, you know, some other celebrities, I think Keanu Reeves as well. We were just kind of talking about how we're going to navigate all this for our son, because these are things that you know, we didn't personally grow up with, you know, I grew up in a very rural area, maybe a handful of um, black families and a handful of Jewish families. So it was predominantly, you know, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, like that's who I grew up with. Um, so it, it's going to be very different and how we parent and how we kind of navigate the race issue. Uh, Cause we're like, Hey, you know, you're, we're all different here, but we're all family. Um, so we got to really work together. And, uh, well, I see an opportunity here. I, I see yeah. an incredible opportunity. Yeah, I really do. Because I think, um, people who have unique circumstances often can teach people who don't have unique circumstances about looking at life a different way, because we take for granted what our circumstances are. They're built sort of built in with our prejudices and, and all that. I, I do want to get our guest in because I think yeah. you're talking about being grounded. Uh, um, our guest was our was on the show before episode 15, uh, Ryan Daniel Beck, and he's back. And um, I don't know if uh, you, you you don't need to do your official uh, yeah. introduction <laughs> of, of Ryan, but I do want to say that um, the reason why we asked Ryan to come back and why I asked you, Adam, to to do the show this with Ryan this morning is that. You know, I basically have grown to really hate Facebook for very many reasons. You know, everybody has the reasons that they hate Facebook. But one of the only reasons I keep it is I like following Ryan's feed on Facebook <laughs> because there's always something really thought provoking and important. And, you know, over the, over the past couple of weeks, Ryan's done a lot of posting sort of basically saying, dear, you know, dear white America, uh, you're not going to get off the hook on this one. You're, you're, you're going to confront this. And I, I'm, I'm finding myself reading these posts and thinking them through. And anyway, I want to Ryan to come on. I, I had some questions I wanted to ask him and, you know, maybe we'll ask him to jump in. He heard our little intros. Ryan, is there anything at the moment you want to just enter with, or do you want to just 
Wait for a question. <laughs> no, I would just I would just follow up on something that you both mentioned in different ways, which is that I think it's um, it's important to realize that almost all the conversations that we're having right now are multi-layered. So in the same way that you're having conversations about all the different sort of conflicting emotions that you're feeling, um, I think as we go through this conversation, you'll realize that there are um, often very few simple answers. And almost all the conversations that I've been having in the last couple of weeks have been, as I said, multi-layered. And uh, I think it's, I think it's just important to start any conversation with that in mind that we're not trying to distill, you know, these very complex situations into a single soundbite that a lot of things have to be unpacked. And it's very possible that we're going to encounter things that seem logically or emotionally incongruent. And I think part of that discomfort is understanding that what we have perceived for so long as being normal versus what we're understanding has been neglected and denied. Um, coming to terms with those two things often creates a lot of dissonance. And for some people, a lot of um, cognitive, emotional um, <laughs> distress. Yeah, I can uh, definitely agree with that. Um, I, I was a couple days just totally distressed, a couple days completely stoked on life. And, you know, um, it's been quite a roller coaster. I know for me, um, I am very much anti Facebook and anti Reddit as well. I think they're very uh, toxic communities, um, especially in the comment section. Uh, it's just, it's tough. And a, a lot of that stuff is, uh, is coming out. Um, to, to really shine right now, people with opinions are, are making them known. So I am really excited to hear what Albert brings up um, in regards to the Facebook post. Because if, if you are out there putting out some good information, I, I commend you because I definitely, I, I can't battle the Facebook. It, it's just too much for me. Well, I mean, one of the things that I'm, uh, I'm picking up from Ryan and learning about myself is I have very, very strong opinions but I'm not very good at, at conflict. And I'm finding mm -hmm. it painful when I um, express myself, post something. And yeah, I don't mind someone unfollowing me because I post about race and they don't think I should um, with that, you know, let them do that. But I have to admit when they confront me and say things that are inviting a response, um, I do find that at that escalation and feeling the hostility and all that, I find it really deeply troubling. So I'm, my question for you, Ryan, is do you get a lot of pushback when you express yourself very passionately uh, about an issue like race? Um, do you have people uh, come to you and say, hey, Ryan, like, get off your high horse and who are you to lecture us? Or um, I'm just wondering if you get pushback and do you just say, hey, look, it's going to come with the territory speaking, speaking about something that's critically important. So one thing to understand is that, you know, this, this conversation for me personally is not a new con 
conversation. This is not a conversation that I've started having in the last two weeks. Um, I, I can remember even, you know, one or two years ago when I started attending Black Lives Matter marches and Black Lives Matter events, there was a time where the words Black Lives Matter were almost like a, like a dirty word. And to, to um, express any association or any support for Black Lives Matter was considered to be, you know, unpatriotic or, or whatever. So the pushback that I received was not presently. The, the pushback that I received was actually like one, two, three years ago when I was kind of getting involved and, and doing some research and some unpacking of my own. So it's interesting because the books that are being encouraged as reading material now were books that you know I read two, three years ago. So it's been really interesting to see a shift in terms of people's um, um, connection to this to this material, whereas you know at a time I sort of was an outlier, and now people are a little bit more receptive to this information. So um, I think by now people know. I mean, <laughs> if they know me they know that this is something that i've been kind of pushing for a while uh even prior to george floyd ahmaud arbery um and i think if you i think if you go back and look at things that i was posting on social media you know over the last three four years you'll see that you know this this was something that i was talking about and there if you go back to those posts you'll see that there was a lot of pushback and what's super interesting is that now there are people, there were individuals who, you know, I remember, I remember who was, who was really um, aggressively opposed to Black Lives Matter at that time. Um, and a lot of those people have, you know, fortunately had, a, had an about face and they are now, you know, in a, in a way which is much more open. Um, I've found that the Black Lives Matter movement itself has understood that there are nuances. Um, even, for example, the name. Think about how many times, how many memes have sort of proliferated in the last two weeks with regard to explaining what Black Lives Matter means as opposed to all lives matter. And so there's a lot of clarification going on with regard to um, people's ability to understand the nuance. And at the end of the day, you can't really have a conversation with people unless you are, in essence, using the same language. And this has been a big conversation. Maybe, I don't know if we're going to get into it, but one of the, one of the, the uh, really important foundational um, uh, keys to sort of reaching across the aisle is making sure that you're speaking the same language so that when I say the word racism and you say the word racism, we're actually talking about the same thing. Yeah, I think that's super important, uh, being on the same level, because, you know, we I think we've all seen a couple examples of it, um, you know, 
I think the word is like tone deaf um, has been used a lot or not, um, you know, just really with it. Um, the biggest one I can think of is Ellen DeGeneres um, when she said people of color um, and then the black community was upset because she didn't say black. Um, I, I told my friend about that and I was like, wait, what? Like, I thought people of color was the word we're supposed to use. Um, you know, uh, so for me, like the explanations, the understanding from, I mean, memes help. I gotta, I gotta admit, um, but also having conversations, um, like the black at Apple conversations have really, really opened my eyes to a lot. Um, as well as, you know, different, uh, news outlets, um, you know, John Oliver, Trevor Noah, um, have really, really been doing a great job explaining it to white people, basically. So, so one of the, the recent posts, uh, when I scrolled back through your feed, Ryan, you basically just said, you know, before you, uh, you know, ask a black friend to te teach you about uh, some of these issues, you have to do your homework. And there was one uh, really great slide that you posted. It, it talked about uh, the five things that you, that, you know, the five areas to, to start doing your homework on. Um, and you listed watch, which listed a bunch of films, read this uh, listed a bunch of books to read, listen. Um, you had act and you had donate. Um, so I, I'll actually say, I can post this, this slide in, uh, in our feed. Um, so people can reference it. Cause I, I found it really, uh, I found it really, really useful. Um, I'm wondering, uh, in terms of that homework, for someone who's feeling overwhelmed, do you have a, a particular sort of personal, like this This was like a first uh, book, a first podcast, a first article. Is there anything that was really, really particularly helpful that you think, you know, if someone's feeling overwhelmed today, when they finish hearing the podcast, they should read or see or do this? What, is there anything like that? Or is it just too broad to answer that question? I, I think it depends on on where you are um, with your emotional availability. If you are still, if you are a person who is still on the fence as to whether or not systemic racism actually exists, and you have questions in your mind as to the veracity of what Black Americans are telling you, you might need to start with something like 13th on Netflix um, and watch the film and then ask yourself, like, is this, like, do I accept the veracity of this, this film? Um, I found 13th to be, to be very straightforward. It's, it's not overly, uh, it's not sensationalized. It's, it's a very fact-based presentation. Um, if you are at a place where you say, you know, I feel that there is definitely room for improvement. I want to learn. I'm open to learning. Um, then I would start with the 28 day workbook challenge, the, by Leila Saad, the, uh, it's called me and white supremacy. It was actually, uh, something that she posted on Instagram. She did a 28 day challenge and then it was it became a, a PDF workbook that people could download and now it's a book. And essentially you do, you, you do one assignment a day. 
you read the chapter, you do a journaling assignment. She gives you some prompts, some questions. And um, one of the beautiful things about the book is that she says at the very beginning in, in the foreword, if, if you are not ready to challenge these ideas, if you're not ready to unpack and adjust your perspective, you're not ready to read this book. But if you are ready and you are open and you are available, like there's a good, there's a good chance that there will be things in the book which trigger you and really force you to do some deep self-reflection. Um, and remember that the, the goal of, or sorry, not the goal, the motivation or the catalyst for doing this work is, is not congratulations. It's not, um, you know, <laughs> a, a participation trophy. It's just that it's the right thing to do. And so that, in essence, being the prime mover, you know that it's the right thing to do. It's something that needs to be improved. And so you're going to commit yourself to these 28 days. And I would say each, each chapter requires, you know, maybe 15 minutes of your investment plus a journaling assignment, which can be as, as, as concise or as you shoot. But I think that is a really great starting point. It's important that people do the work for themselves. Often you think about when people are doing book reports in elementary school and they'll ask their friend, hey, can you tell me what happens in the book? And you have to say to these people, hey, you need to read the book for yourself. Um, and in that way, I think doing the 28-day challenge, me and white supremacy, Leila Saad, is a great place to start. And so it sounds like you can't really uh, get the spark notes or, you know, read just the blurb and understand the full article. You really just have to, to challenge yourself and be emotionally committed to it. Um, a lot of what you've been speaking about is being emotionally ready for it um, before you're intellectually ready for it. Can you expand on what kind of mindset you need to shift from um, and get to, to, to be emotionally ready? Well, as I said before, you, you, you have to, <laughs> as they say with um, anger management, and they also say in AA, the first step to recovery is understanding and realizing that there's a problem. If, if you are still at a point where you are questioning the veracity of what your friends are telling you or what Black Americans are telling you, this is going to have. This is going to be your first. Sort. This is going to be your first obstacle. And um, I, I, there was another post where I, I said there have been a lot of memes related to the the true meaning of all lives matter. When in actuality, the conversation needs to go even deeper, which is when people say all lives matter, what do they actually mean? So. When someone says all lives matter, it means that they're operating from one of three perspectives. Either they don't care that black lives matter, like that black lives are, are valued less, or they don't believe that black lives are in danger, or they know it, but they would rather ignore it and pretend that 
we're living in a post-racial utopia and racism doesn't exist. So aside from looking at the surface level, which is why all lives matter versus black lives matter is an unbased, like an unfounded argument, you have to kind of get to the root and ask yourself, what's the motivation? What's, what's really going on here? Is it that I don't care? I don't believe, or I ignore it and pretend that it doesn't exist. Then we can have another conversation. So I think a similar thing happens with regard to whether or not people are ready. And uh, I'm not. I'm. I. I. I'm not sure how to necessarily get people from the point at which they are questioning the veracity of what black folks are saying to admitting that there is an issue other than what I call constant gentle pressure. Constant gentle pressure is a, is a concept which was um, actually created by Danny Mayer, the guy who started Shake Shack. Um, and he applies it in a lot of different situations, but I find it very apropos. Constant gentle pressure means that you just, you're unrelenting in terms of your um, your insistence that these issues be looked at. And I have, I have observed and I've, I've had the experience that constant gentle pressure with some people is necessary to get them to the point where they say, yeah, fine, fine, fine. Yeah, I'll read the book. And then depending on where they're operating from, I might suggest different books because I know that different authors take different approaches. Well, I saw Albert rocking out in the background with uh, the unrelenting. So I'm going to let him uh, jump in on that. <laughs> I love constant gentle pressure because that's obviously how we're supposed to deal with our lives in every facet of our lives. You know, we can't, if the minute we think that we're some finished perfect product, we're doomed we can make improvements in virtually every, we could be more compassionate. We could be better listeners. We could be more generous. We could be less angry. So I love constant gentle pressure, but um, you know, Ryan, one of the things you're asking that, 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 uh, that change from like the emotional readiness to the, the, you know, recognizing there's a problem uh, that area. I personally feel strongly that art plays a very big role in that transformation. Um, when I was a kid, uh, one of the most powerful moments of our youth was when the show Roots came on television. Um, we were a, a white family living in the suburbs and you know we had bought the whole Kool-Aid on how, you know, the, the perfect American middle-class lifestyle. And, you know, I could have easily believed that life in America was perfect at that point in my life with the kind of lifestyle that we had. Um, it was not, you know, extravagantly wealthy, but it was certainly co very comfortable. And Roots came on and it was like, oh, you know, I know we had a civil rights movement in this country. And I remember this amazing speech by Martin Luther King, but Roots put it in your living room. And for a week or that it was on or however many weeks it was on. It was, I think a, it was a mini series and it came on once a week. I don't remember my, but that was really one of my, my amazing 
powerful experiences realizing how art um, changes our lives that this show which was completely a dramatization this this was i was watching a dramatization of the actual way that slavery operated and and it was so you know you watched it and thought america could never unwatch it like this was enough that watching roots collectively as a culture should have been enough to make us want to dismantle all of it and yet somehow it didn't get dismantled it morphed it changed it hid it went into other institutions um it hides so racism you know here we are it's now many many years later and we're having the same conversations but i do believe that that is a role that's why i think i think it's great that you're recommending that people also watch uh watch certain films i think we're ready now i think the 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 george floyd video was 8 minutes and 46 seconds of it might it's like the equivalent of the roots mini series it was like we all watched it together and um at a very very also already very pregnant moment in our in our history because of covid and i i think it really was a lightning bolt and like hopefully a lightning bolt to make a really truly uh, you know uh, transformational change and i'm just wondering uh, ryan now you've been involved you mentioned your involvement with the black black lives uh, matter movement i'm just wondering are you feeling a certain degree of of confidence that we are at a turning point and if if not what are some of the things i mean con- constant gentle pressure yes we're, we're going to keep applying it but are you more hopeful than you've ever been are you just just give us a sense of where a little snapshot of where your mind is at right now about how whether or not we're going to actually go all the way this time it's a very interesting question because the stakes are really high and if if white people in america do not follow through at this moment in my opinion it's going to set us back in ways which are i don't know i feel irreparable i mean there at this moment there there is no there is no wiggle room it's you either act you recognize that things need to change in very significant ways um or if white america in 2 weeks has gone back to normal um it just kind of proves the point so it's it's a double edged sword at the moment where there is this groundswell of support which can be leveraged if it's maintained but if the support dies off within you know 1 2 3 weeks um i think it will be sort of used against um used against us to say you had every opportunity and you failed so i think that again the stakes are really high right now to maintain the conversation keep it sort of on the forefront on the front burner and that i would say is probably the most important thing is to make sure that it doesn't get put back in the closet get doesn't get put back in and relegated as it has been so many times before this this has happened before where something creates a groundswell of protest 
and then it kind of retreats and then something else. Yeah. Rodney King. I mean, my God, it's, it's not like we've never seen a black man di uh, being destroyed by cops. I mean, we've seen it. Um, I mean, obviously this time we've watched a man die, but, but, um, and I, I do really agree with you. I think we are at a, a tipping point of something irreparable being um, done to our society. Um, you know, there's just too much. There is a, a great deal at stake. I'm going back to the chart that you, uh, we uh, referenced before, and you had the box about acting, and you talked about um, a couple of the the three points that were listed were, were basically to text um, and demand the other officer involved yes. be arrested, and that's happened. So one of the action points happened. Call the, D the DA to demand all four officers be charged and arrested. They did. Um, you, you provided the number. And, and contact your congresspeople um, about resolutions to contend police brutality. And we're seeing, we're seeing uh, in you know, New York State, I think Cuomo just signed uh, a, a law with, with some changes to some policing issues. And, and I can't imagine that um, either political party is going to not put something on the, on the national uh, platform about, uh, about po police issues. But um, I mean, it is deeper than just police issues. And in my opinion, in a way, police people are doing police people are doing the dirty work of other people who are not seen. We the real people who are fomenting um, uh, the re, uh, the the conflict and the lack of political will to solve a problem that obviously needs to be solved. Um, just one thing. I'm sorry. I'm kind of digressing and going in in different directions. But the other night uh, was one of the I thought one of the best moments on CNN that I've ever seen was Chris Cuomo basically did a five minute with charts, facts, and figures. Here is proof of systemic racism. Did you did you happen to see that, Ryan? I did see that. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. I just love that because that was the kind of argument that a lot of people are going to find really, really hard. I think now is a moment to take things like that, to take every moment where people are just like, no, 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 sorry, you're wrong. There is systemic racism. It's kind of like denying um, global warming. Sorry, this, you know, if you're not going to listen to science, then, you know, you're kind of in a way you're, you're living in the dark ages. And that's kind of, that's kind of sad. And in a way there is science here. The facts are, Black people who have the same education don't get paid the same. They have health consequences that white people don't have. Uh, the list that, you know, when you, when you watch that, that broadcast, it was just like, you cannot deny it. So it goes back to what you were saying. If you know this and you hear these things and you, and you don't care, well, you know, if enough of us don't care, then we are going to have a society that we can't, that we can't repair. Um, and, and, you know, I, I know that you will keep acting uh, Ryan, because that's your nature. I think one of the things that I've learned about myself through all this is I've always, you know, I, I've discovered James Baldwin's writings back in the 1980s. I've given away copy after copy of his books for 40 years. To me, he taught me life without a moral purpose is no life. That's what I learned from James Baldwin back in the 80s. And I'm realizing now that just understanding that intellectually and spiritually is not the same as taking action. That I, I, I try to change people's opinions. I try to make people feel passionate about moral, moral and ethical justice. Um, but now I, I need to take 
more action. And I need, you know, if I don't want certain things to happen in this country, I have to, I have to be anti, anti-racist uh, and not just not a racist. That's a big difference. Um, so I, to, to that extent, I'm kind of being, you know, put put into motion in a way that I'm not. I mean, I've been more in motion than I used to be, but I need Let to me, be much. Can more I ask you guys a question? Um, sure. So I, I think this is, yeah, this sure. is a, a really important thing, a really important key. How do you define racism? Racism, yeah, to me is judging one based on preconceived notions of a skin type or a history um, and based on fear and xenophobia and deeply rooted hatred. Okay. Albert? Yeah, mine is just thinking that any human being deserves anything less than full dignity and equal treatment. Any, any, any slip up, any diversion from that fundamental concept that every single individual uh, deserves the same rights is, is a form of racism. So, and I, I just bring this up because um, even, between, even between Adam and Albert, there is room for maybe slight differences in nuance, right? I'm not saying that you're not on the same page, but I am saying that you, you defined racism in different ways, right? And if you think about, if you think about a spectrum and, and you, you were to put Adam's definition, you were to put Albert's, Albert's on a spectrum and then somebody else who's a little bit more conservative on the spectrum and then you put David Duke on the spectrum, you'd see that there's all these different definitions of racism. And so going back to your question with regard to how do you get somebody from this place of denial to this place of acceptance is making sure, and this is what I was mentioning before, making sure that when I say racism, that you and I know exactly what I mean by racism. So my definition for racism comes from Ibram Kendi, and I think it's the most concise and nuanced definition that I've ever heard with regard to racism because it's so direct and it's so simple. So racism is the marriage between racist ideas and racist policy to maintain and perpetuate racial inequality. Any conversation that I have with somebody, I start with this definition because I constantly find it to be a super helpful tool when we start conversations, because even if we diverge and we start talking about something, I can always pull it back to the definition and say, okay, this is a racist idea. And also remember that this definition, and this is not my, this is not, this, I am not proposing this or propounding this. This, this comes directly from Ibram's book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. The, the idea that, uh, for example, white people are slightly better 
at standardized testing than black people, or black people are slightly more athletic than white people. These are racist ideas that can be held by white people as well as black people. And Ibram Kendi himself said for many, many years, there were a lot of racist ideas that he held about himself. He didn't necessarily have so many racist ideas about white people. He had racist ideas about black people in relation to white people. And he said that in his own personal journey, unpacking a lot of these racist ideas led him to the realization that racism is, again, a multi-layered kind of puzzle. And part of it is the racist idea. Part of it is the racist policy. And also understanding that racist policy is connected to racial power. The difference between black folks and white folks in America, they both have, to some extent, racist ideas. The difference being is that black people, because of the system, do not have racial power to enact racist policy. This is why the idea reverse racism doesn't exist. Because somebody who is black you know, was mean to you at Starbucks is not racist, reverse racism. That's a mean person at Starbucks treating you because they had a bad day. Racism has to do with, again, the marriage between a racist idea and a racist policy, which comes from racial power, in a way that perpetuates or maintains racial inequality. And I recently was reading uh, an analogy which said, if you take a single racist idea, think about, think about the bars on a birdcage. Have you heard about the birdcage? I have not. So, yeah, just why the cage bird sings. <laughs> so imagine, a, imagine a, like an old, an old birdcage. Your perspective to understanding the concept of a birdcage is very much connected to your perspective in terms of how you are relate like how you are in relation to the cage itself. So if you move very closely to the cage and you look into the cage, you don't actually see any bars. Because your relationship to the bird is not accurate. Now, if you turn to the side and you see one of the bars, you ask yourself, well, why can't the bird just fly out? There's only one bar. It's only when you pull back and you see the entire system and how that bar connects to that bar, which connects to the top, which connects to the bottom, then you say, oh, now I see how all these pieces fit together. So as to what you were saying earlier, Albert, police brutality is one of those bars but it's also connected to redlining, which is also connected to uh, inequalities in education, which is also connected to discrimination in the workplace. So all of these things sort of interconnect. And then when you see the full picture, you go, okay, now I understand how all these racist ideas, how all these racist policies perpetuate and maintain racial inequality. Now, this definition is super, super important because it also kind of gives us the key to the solution. Using that definition, anti-racism is the 
marriage between anti-racist ideas and anti-racist policies, which perpetuate and maintain racial equality. One of the things which kind of blew my mind was the neutrality of discrimination. Most of the time when you talk to white people and you mention the word discrimination, unilaterally, discrimination is something which is bad. However, it's more nuanced than that. When we talk about discrimination, are we talking about racist discrimination or are we talking about anti-racist discrimination? Because there's a huge difference. Racist discrimination is discrimination which perpetuates racial inequality. Racist discrimination, sorry, anti-racist discrimination is discrimination which promotes and perpetuates racial equality. That was a huge game changer for me, which again, it's not to say that discrimination is good or bad. You have to ask yourself, what type of discrimination is it? Is it racist discrimination or anti-racist discrimination? What is an example though of anti-racist discrimination? Could you clarify that just a little bit? Sure. Um, I'll, I'll, start by, I'll start by saying this. When you have become accustomed to 100%, in other words, 100% of whatever is your norm, you, are, you have been accustomed, it's the air that you breathe, 90% feels like discrimination. If, you, if you're accustomed to 100%, 90% feels like discrimination. If you've been eating 100% of the pizza and now you're eating 90% of the pizza, 90% now feels like discrimination. So I'm having a conversation right now with a very well-known organization. This organization has been dependent on black creativity, black talent for over 30 years. This organization was founded by black individuals. This organization is very successful because of black individuals. But if you look at the top, it is 100% owned by white folks. So we're working on an initiative to say, look, it's not as though black folks have not made a financial monetary contribution to the success of this company for over 30 years. There are people within your organization who, des who deserve equity and a place at the table, not an honorary like um, title, a token. Yeah, we're not talking about, you know, a plaque on the wall. So what we're asking this organization is to go back to the board and think about, really seriously consider divesting 10% of the company and giving it to certain individuals who have, for over 30 years, made contributions in terms of their uh, artistic and creative talent to the success of this organization. I can say with certainty that this, this organization, A, would not exist. The success of this organization 
would not exist. The reputation of this organization would not exist without the very active participation and contribution from Black folks. So for us, we're saying we need you to look at giving 10% of this company to Black ownership. Now, people say, why are you taking something away from white people? This is discrimination. Not quite. It is just... No, it's a move towards equity. It's actually recognizing that you have to... You have to look at equity as well. You can't just look at one variable in the equation. Well, you know, the difference... So what, I, I was talking to somebody last night, and I said the difference between uh, the, the nuance when we talk about anti-racist discrimination is that we're not giving to, we're giving what's due. This is a very different thing. We're not giving a handout. As I said, for over 30 years... There have been about three to four people who have been incredibly instrumental. And again, we actually went back and did a sort of uh, approximated accounting. And we realized that over 30 years, these particular individuals had produced revenue streams between 10 and $20 million for this organization over the course of 30 years. So to say, well, they never put money in, they never put up capital is blatantly false. Like <laughs> the, the, the business wouldn't exist without these people. So that would be, that would be one example of anti-racist discrimination. Yeah, and maybe the word discrimination, even in that sentence is not quite even the right word. Yes, possibly. I think I think that the word racism and the word discrimination um, have, in large part, been co-opted by the right, which is it's it it requires a sort of a level of critical thinking to understand what I'm about to say. But the words racism and the words discrimination have, in large part, been co-opted by the right and aspects of white supremacy to mean something pejorative, when in actuality, if you step back and you look at the big picture, you realize that, I mean, we've all seen this. Think about on social media where somebody says, you're a racist, you're a racist. If you watch Jane, um, uh, what is her name? You know what I'm talking about, the the blue-eyed, brown-eyed experiment. I'm forgetting her last name. I, I, my brain is going to Jane Goodall. <laughs> yeah, and <laughs> it's not Jane Goodall. No, um, Jane. I can't. Okay, Adam's, Adam's looking so, for us. Jane Elliot. Jane Elliot. Yes. So she's she she makes a she makes a very bold statement, and again, unless you understand the nuance of statement and you you have critical thinking. It sounds it sounds inflammatory. And she says, all white people are racist. And people, people, there's a lot of pushback. They say, I'm not racist. But again, this is the sort of um, insidious semantics that are at play. Because if you can 
turn the word racist into a pejorative, if you can turn it into an insult, then the conversation stops. If you look at racism from a more bird's eye neutral perspective, and you realize that all of us, to some degree, hold racial bias. So in some degree, we're all racist because we were born into a racist system. And the, the minute that you are born, exactly. especially if you're white, you start to benefit from white privilege without even knowing it. So, you know, one of the things that I've, I've been very upfront about is I, I have had conversations with my black friends. And one of the first conversations that I had was, listen, at any point, if I slip and my racism starts to show, I want you to publicly call me out. I want you to check me in public. If you don't feel comfortable, you can do it in my private message. But again, I give you permission to keep me accountable. I give you permission to call me in to check. Because again, this is an ongoing process. Kendi says that racism is not a tattoo. You don't get a tattoo and then it's forever racist or you get a tattoo and you're forever anti-racist. <laughs> you're swimming in an ocean <laughs> of racism. So you're swimming in an ocean of white privilege. So every morning you have to wake up and make a conscious, deliberate decision to operate in an anti-racist way. Because if you don't, you're automatically going to just be completely enveloped in this system, which you didn't create. But if you're not actively working against it, it's going to benefit you as a white person, whether you like it or not. With an added irony of being that we live in a country where equality is talked about and uh, as part of the founding, the founding ethos of the country. So it's so funny that people who don't recognize this are the first to roll out their patri patriotism. Today, there was a politician, I saw his tweet from Texas, Dan Crenshaw, who said, you know, America is beautiful, love her kind of moment. And it's kind of like you are, you don't not love something by looking hard at it and seeing it for what it is. James Baldwin said that very powerfully. He just said, it's the fact that I actually love the country that makes me commit myself to perpetually criticizing it because there's really no other way to get towards the goals and ideals that we have unless we, unless we work at it every single day, which leads me to another one of your posts. You said, you know, racism isn't over mm. when white people say it is. Mm -hmm. You said something to, to that effect. Um, I, I, I really love that, that, that idea that you don't decide when other people have equal opportunity. They have to actually feel that they have equal opportunity. They need to feel like when they go jogging, they don't get run down by a, a truck. Uh, they need to understand that they are safe, you know, as safe as anybody else. So, uh, you know, do you want to add anything to that particular, um, you know, I, I think it plays into that moment uh, we were talking earlier of is this moment going to really push us through or are people going to go back in a couple of weeks and just let this go, go on? I think it's a very interesting question. And I think that those two, actually those two ideas can actually dovetail. So 
equality is going to happen when black folks truly feel that if something bad happens, that the justice system and those responsible will be held accountable. That's, that's when, because, I mean, as long as human beings on earth, you're, you're, you're going you're gonna to deal with people who have bias. I mean, to, to say that we're going to one day achieve a, a utopia where everyone, you know, no one sees color is, is, is silliness. What we can hope for is systemic change whereby someone knows that if they go jogging and something tragic and horrific happens, those responsible will be held accountable immediately. Now, you asked me, what is, what is unique about this particular situation? I think we can all agree that the role technology has played in this particular moment is unprecedented. By the way, unprecedented is my current least favorite word. <laughs> There's there's been an unprecedented overuse of the word unprecedented. <laughs> <laughs> and I just broke my own rule. But I think that the role technology has played, um, as, as Will Smith said, it's... Um, it's being filmed. It, the difference is it's being filmed. Yeah. And not only is it being filmed, but this conversation that we're having right now was not possible a year ago. Yeah. So, and and the the ability for other people to be privy to this conversation that the three of us are having is also not something which was possible ten years ago. So, I, I if if there is cause for hope, and I think there is cause. I think we have to appreciate the fact that if communication is key to progress, um, technology hopefully plays a beneficial part, <laughs> but we also can see that technology uh, and what they call the infodemic and mass disinformation uh, can also be perpetuated by technology, but I think technology is is a key component here with regard to helping people wake up and understand the the reality of the situation. Tech has put everyone on the map, no matter where you're at. If you have you know mm -hmm. Wi-Fi connection, you can talk, you can stream, and you can show everything across the world and with more and more Wi-Fi and with more and more availability to have, you know, a, a camera in your pocket, we have to start doing this. And, you know, it, it's so tragic that death has to bring about this conversation instead of, you know, a, a great event or a celebration. But yeah, I mean, almost everyone has a, has a phone with a camera in their pocket. So we need to make sure that we use that in the best way possible. And I think, in my opinion, the best way possible to do this is to 
talk to our leaders and become leaders ourselves because we could you know go after individual policemen we can go after you know the the ground floor but that those people will just be replaced and we need to really cut the head off of this thing um go to the very top of the birdcage and just rip it off because that's where it's all connected and however that's going to happen you know the racism is in the system that's why it's systemic so we need to recreate the entire system not only from the ground up but from the top down we need anti-racist leaders and that needs to be a part of your leadership credentials and on your resume is hey i am actively anti-racist and i think that needs to be the conversation that we need to hold all of our leaders to whether at your workforce your political leaders your governors your mayors your senators and the president so we need we need leaders who are actively anti-racist and i think that is going to be what we should really work for you know in our own small communities to make sure anti-racism is a leadership credential yeah it's interesting that you say um it act actively anti-racist i think this is something that needs to i mean i i understand i understand by saying actively anti-racist i think to expand on that is to understand that the definition of anti-racist is to be active mhm so just as being not racist is a misnomer being passively anti-racist is also a misnomer so yeah we have to that's something that we have to talk about so if if you're if you're saying that you are anti-racist it means that you are perpetually daily taking action you know i i say it's like i say it's kind of like you know the lazy the lazy river at um at uh sandcastle in pittsburgh <laughs> <laughs> exactly yeah so you go to these water parks and you see the lazy river and like mm-hmm. you're either on the inner tube you know enjoying the enjoying the ride which is white privilege mm-hmm. you are swimming with the current which would be kkk or you're walking in the opposite direction against the current or you're you're anti-racist you know so it's <laughs> you're either going with the current in a passive way you're actively like accelerating or you're walking against the lazy river current so to be anti-racist is to be in action And yeah the the reason why I was saying that is cuz you're saying like you know you can't just put a tattoo on yourself saying right. I'm anti-racist and and it be forever and done you it is a daily commitment and it's walking because it is one foot in front of the other every action every moment you have to continually chain those together for movement and that that's what people really need to hear is you know to start with one action Absolutely. I had, you know, I I had a question for you guys um and this is an open discussion that I've been having with my community. And I don't know if Albert I don't know if you saw this, but I posted a question. It was an open-ended question. This is a question that I'm currently trying to navigate for myself, um which is if you operate in an anti-racist way and you are taking action, how do you 
ensure that your anti-racist actions and leveraging your privilege do not cross the line into white saviorism. And I don't know if this is if this is a question that has come up in any of your conversations, but it's it's definitely something that I'm that I'm looking at. And I'm just curious to know what what you would think about that. Yeah, so this is the first time I've heard white saviorism. Could you give us a little bit of, of like a definition? Yeah, I remember reading it, but it would be good for you to explain to us what what it is exactly in your in your mind and definition. Sure. Uh, did you ever see the movie uh, The Last Samurai with uh, Tom Cruise? <laughs> not all four hours of it. No, I did not. But all right, I actively. Have you ever seen films. people? Have you ever seen white people go to Africa and build churches and 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 save yes. <laughs> and, yes. and save the black people who are in need of in, in need of. Or they they go to the American Southwest and teach the natives about Christianity and yeah yeah we've seen this yeah so this is this is a times. this is a trope of the the white man coming in to save the savages but it plays out in a lot of different ways um, just in and and a more contemporary uh, a, a more contemporary example of this would be where you know the it the 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 concept is only taken seriously once the white guy explains it. And it could have been explained three or four times prior to that by women or uh, black folks. But until the white person explains it, then we're not gonna pay attention to that idea or that proposal. So the question again that I'm, I'm having and I'm, I'm trying to navigate is, saying, how do you operate in an anti-racist way? You take action, but at the same time, be mindful and conscious that you are not, um, again, exhibiting this white savior complex. It's interesting because we've all heard in the last three weeks that white people need to listen, right? But we've also heard that white people need to speak up. So there is on the surface an incongruency. Do I need to listen or do I need to speak up? Listening is what you tell someone who is white-splaining or <laughs> exhibiting white savior complex. Like, can you shut up for a second and just listen? On the other hand, when you leverage your white privilege, this is when we need you to speak up. So. I think both of these things are valid. My question, and I'm again, it's an open-ended question to the community at the moment, is how do you navigate these two things? Is it situational? Is it contextual? Where, how, do you, how do you navigate between these two ideas, which are both important, but seem to be incongruent? I think for me, um, being a good leader and being a good parent, Leaders, they need to trailblaze when necessary, but they also need to follow when it's appropriate. Um, just really understanding and having emotional intelligence as to 
when it's socially appropriate, like your social awareness, and then along with your relationship management, to know when it when it's time to use, uh, mm-hmm. you know, a certain strategy. And then with being a parent is educating my son, myself, and my family about what's really out there and learning. So between using certain techniques appropriately and educating myself and family would be my two ways that I'm, you know, navigating um, against white splaining. Albert, I think you're up, man. <laughs> yeah, I'm. Yeah, I, I think I need to really dive more deeply into that and really think it through. I, I, I do think, obviously, timing and motivation are critically important in any in any um, endeavor. Um, you know, we we never are experts, complete experts at anything, but at the same time, you can't spend your entire life to become an expert and say nothing. There, there, you need to sort of take action upon as much information as you can get, but also be effective. There's no point in me analyzing a thing and then taking no action because I'm like, I'm not an expert. I can't take any action. Um, I, you know, I try to educate myself. I mean, I'm an American. I try to study history all the time. I didn't, I don't wait for problems in our society to think about American culture and, you know, I read. I've I've read ever since I discovered I love uh, like to read. I've read about our country's history, um, and I'm not an expert. I I can't teach a course in it, but I sure can tell you why I have my the opinions that I have. And um, you know, I I I feel myself on that in that moment now where I have to call upon that mm-hmm. knowledge often, actually. And you know, when someone confronts me on on social media and says, it uh, talks about all lives matter and, and says, did you know uh, that it was, you know, the, the democratic party, the Republican party did this or that. And I'm just like, look, read a book mm-hmm. on the founding of those parties. You actually have mm-hmm. all of your facts wrong. Uh, the facts actually are very, very different from what, how you're explaining your, your definitions here. And um, that gives me, you know, like a certain sense of, now it's okay for me to speak up because I actually am drawing upon my the, the time that I've taken to become knowledgeable in this area. But on the other hand, you know, I mean, right now about policing, it, I'm not going to talk about that subject until I until I really understand and study it. I mean, I just hear the phrase "for-profit prison," and by definition, that's something that's telling me that that's wrong. You know, nothing that's that's about suffering of, 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 in any variety of ways should be a for-profit, mm. you know, whether it's healthcare, et cetera. When, when the minute I hear for-profit in certain circumstances, I think there's something fishy going on there, but I'm not an expert and I can't, I can't talk about it. So there's a time to learn and there's a time to talk. Hey, Albert, have you heard of the 40-70 rule? What? Uh, no, I, I don't think so. Uh, so Colin Powell did this. I think this might help you. Oh yeah, with, uh, actually, I, I have I have heard that. Yeah. So you know, no a leader, less than 40. a leader of the Atlanta Opera, Atlanta Opera told told, told me that. I'm, I'm sorry. Why don't you say it now that it's in in our talk? Yeah. Um, so Colin Powell um, made decisions with 
uh, he would use no less than 40% of the information and no more than 70%. And he would make a decision based on that. So, you know, trust your gut, but don't shoot from the hip um, is basically what, what he's saying. So, you know, I don't think you need 100% of the information um, to make this decision. I think you can really just find find good information and then make it. I don't think we all have to be experts and I don't think we all need 100% of the information. Yeah, but what, what reading one tweet and thinking that you're informed <laughs> on a subject is really going to yeah. destroy our democracy. That is very People true. have these amazingly passionate opinions having read one little thing on Twitter from some conspiracy website. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm just like, sorry, dude, you don't know anything about anything. Yes. Brian, that- I'm not sure. Well, I I, I, I'll, I'll just say that I had a, a very interesting experience uh, back in September of last year. I served on a grand jury for one month, and uh, it was a, it was a fascinating experience. But um, I had a <laughs> I had a a slight um, I, I made a, a very key observation. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the way that grand jury works, but you hear. Over the course of a month, you hear anywhere between, you know, 30 and 40 cases. And essentially, you're just deciding whether or not there's enough evidence to go to trial. Um, and so the, the U.S. attorney comes in, presents the evidence, leaves the room, and then everyone who's on the grand jury, it's about 25 people, and they deliberate, you take a vote, and, uh, and then you move on to the next case. After the first um, probably two or three days, I noticed something very odd. The, the, the racial breakdown of the actual 25 people who were on the grand jury was very diverse. The, the um, New York State Justice Department had you know, put together a jury that was really re- reflective of, of all genders, of all races. Um, a lot of different uh, socioeconomic backgrounds. And because of that, I was one of three white men. So out of 25, there were only three white men. The two other guys, you know, very rarely said anything. Um, I would frequently raise my hand and, you know, offer my input. And I noticed after the second or third day, that every time I would raise my hand, the entire room would stop talking. I also noticed that there was um, an older Dominican woman on the jury, and every time she started talking, other people would interrupt or talk over her or just disregard the fact that she was talking. And so I, I thought to myself, I'm going to play, I'm going to do a little social experiment and just see what happens. So the next time we go into deliberation um, and I see that she's saying something and she's getting interrupted, I raise my hand and sure enough, the entire room goes silent. <laughs> and I said, I'd like to hear what Carmen has to say. And suddenly everybody stopped and listened to what Carmen had to say in its entirety. And for the rest of the grand jury, I really actually didn't input very much. I would just act as sort of a guardian. And anytime I noticed that somebody was being talked over, I would raise my hand and say, I'd like to listen to what Carlos has to say. (laughs) 
And it was a, it was a very interesting moment, a realization for me that that my privilege in this situation, which is being a tall white man, could be leveraged in a way to make sure that other people's voices were being heard. That's a great way to do it, Ryan. That's a a shining example of of what you were saying. But but when you look back at it, do you ask if that is that white saviorism in some way? I mean, are you seeing are you looking back at it in any any critical way or do you see like oh that that was a really good use of my voice? Right Again, there? I don't know the answer to that question. It's it's the question that I'm it's the question that I'm that I'm that I currently am navigating. If I'm being transparent and vulnerable right now, it is to say that I don't have the answer to that question. Because I think actually the deeper thing that you've done here is remind us that we should always be trying to include everybody in the experience that we're having. That you're we're all part of keeping track not just of our own business, but making sure other people's businesses are heard. And I, I think that's just a good f- approach to life. I think being, it's just, it's just being alive, being a, a cognizant, caring, compassionate individual is caring, caring about the voices of others. So um, I, I just see that as a, as a good, you know, a, a good quality we could bring to everyday life in every setting. And I've never been on a grand jury, but now you've eluc- elucidated how it works a little bit. So thanks for that. One. Have you, have either of you ever been in a situation where you felt that your opinion or your perspective was given greater weight than another person, either based on your education, either based on your gender or your race? It's, uh, I'd have to go back in the uh, time capsule here. I'm sh- I'm sure it happened in high school. I I, I think I, I think one thing that you know all white people need to look at is that, especially like for example, you mentioned high school, is that uh, you know our fifteen the our fifteen year old version of ourselves was probably not aware, but there was probably to some degree. Um, an acceptance that being white, you were to some degree maybe more responsible or more intelligent or more um, reliable. Um, And this is one of those things where I mean, I've had to really go back and, and, and look at situations and things that people said, um, which kind of, they didn't, they, they went over my head at the time, but now looking back, I realized, wow, that was something that I didn't, I didn't pick up on. Um, and it's, Again, it's just something that I'm that I'm really looking to unpack. I would I would say for me, um, the the not the experience that I have had that's probably the most um, interesting in this context is I ne- did not feel um, 
my, uh, my safety was ever endangered being a white person. I never felt like I'm going to be singled out by the cop and beaten up or anything like that. But at the same token, I, I did feel, you know, I'm walking down a street in New York city. And if I'm holding hands with Brian, my husband now, um, there's been times where we've had epithets uh, said there's been, there's been very hostile actually uh, actions taken where I realized that is a variation of that, of, of, you know, we take our security for granted until we're, until we're, are, it's challenged. And then you have to look at why you don't feel secure. And definitely for me, there are times where my being a gay person has made me feel more vulnerable. And um, that's the, that, those are the times where I realize what's, oh, okay. There are times where I don't have to think about anything, but there are times where I'm like, wow, this might not be a time to behave a certain way. I shouldn't say a certain thing. I shouldn't be a certain, a certain part of me shouldn't be shown. One of the best definitions that I've heard recently with regard to white privilege is that it's not about what you went through or what you experienced. It's about what you didn't have to go through. Totally. And, and I think this is something that, especially, I mean, if, if we're talking uh, in the most relevant sense, this is something that white men need to really look at and unpack. What have we as white men not had to go through? And the challenging part of this question is, if you didn't have to go through it, it's hard to be aware of it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, I, I, saw, I saw a picture, a meme with Nina Simone, uh, and it said, freedom is no fear. And I think that that's really true. I think that that is a very fundamental thing. We want to not feel afraid. And people living under the, under the, under the threat of fear is not a full human life. And I don't know, I read today in the New York Times, I can't remember the writer's name, but she's a woman now living in, in Trinidad. And she just, just said, basically, I've given up on America. I just can't take it anymore. I can't take the racism. I can't take that, that basically that fear factor of living in America. And I, I think more people in America are going to be more fearful if we don't deal with this problem, because it, you know, to get back to Baldwin, one of James Baldwin's most in, incredible uh, writing that I read was linking the fate of black people to white people and saying, you can have uh, one race um, be healthy without the other race being healthy. And that the two were inextricably tied. And that, that really left a very deep impression on me when I read it back in the 1980s, and it still does. We, our identities, our well-being are all interrelated. And if any anybody in our society feels vulnerable that's an indication that's a problem. Have you have you has to be have you looked at the hu human genome project and the the results of the human genome project from Spencer Wells? Just just the the understanding that with regard to our superficial differences in skin color in the melanin in our skin, the differentiation between races. Uh, 
is like a, a margin of error of uh, like 0.02%. So in other words, if you look at the human genome project, or if you look at the human genome across white people, black people, it's 99.98% the same. Yep. Yeah, Jared Diamond also um, writes about that in his books as well. Um, they're both anthropologists and also correlates that we are 98% chimpanzee. We share the same DNA. <laughs> right. So that's how close we are. And the fact that we see so much difference mm-hmm. that it's even like a different species with race is ludicrous because it's, yeah, 0.02 of mm-hmm. what is actually different. Um, DNA wise. So it's, you know, science definitely backs this up, but it seems that the problem is extremely social because just like many other things in, in our lives, um, it's, it's what the commentary is and what we were believed or taught to believe or existed in and believed from day one. I mean, we're, we were all born into it. And I know from a very early age, I said to myself, I'm glad I'm not black because they get treated horribly. And that was a grade school, junior high, Adam. And, and I, I knew that because being adopted and, and getting the shake I got, I mean, gratitude every day. I, I feel like I hit the lottery from day one. That, that's me. So, you know, my usual demeanor of happiness and joy um, stems a lot from that, but I know if I was born into different circumstances, it would be extremely different, extremely different. And, you know, how do I take that knowledge and apply it to this systemic racism being born into it? You have to fight it every day with anti-racist behavior. Yeah. Well, guys, let me tell you, um, first of all, Ryan, I just, we love having you on the show. I, I think also because we didn't talk about when you needed to end I don't want to assume that, <laughs> that you can just keep talking in this case, but if there's anything, I mean, we want to have you back as often as oh, possible because yeah. your, your thinking and your, your articulateness and your spirit is so beautiful. Uh, it's I just want to thank you. Yeah. I want to thank you for the inspiration um, that you've brought to me personally, and all, but also to the, to the illumination that you've brought to this issue today. Is there is there any any wrap up thought? Uh, I you know this, I mean it's such a big a big subject, and uh, it's going to be part of our daily life to be thinking about it seriously and taking action. Is there any anything you want to end with, or should we just? I would just I would just encourage everyone to maintain a sense of. Uh, of humility Um, you know I think that if you are in a situation where someone feels like they need to check you or correct you the most important thing you can say in response is thank you I mean I've had yeah it's a gift I as I always say it's a privilege to be able to educate yourself about racism rather than have to experience it. And so if someone has something that they need to, to share with me and say, you know, you, you're not quite accurate, you're not quite 
on the money with this particular point, my response will always be thank you. Like, because it is a, it is a process. And the minute that you feel like <laughs> you figured out racism, you probably got more work to do. Yeah, it is a process. You don't just decide you're anti-racist one day and you're at 100%. You got to build it. You got to build it up. So Ryan, thank you so much for this conversation. Like I said, it is truly refreshing to hear from you. Um, Your mind is beautiful. So thank you so much. This has been another episode of the Veer Vulnerabilis Veer podcast. I'm Adam Glinsky. I'm Albert Imperato. And our guest today was... Ryan Daniel Beck. Thanks so much, you guys. Thank you for listening.